Hello and welcome to This is a Token with Alex Monroe, the podcast that celebrates all things jewellery. I've spent half a lifetime designing and making jewellery, but what really interests me is what it means to other people. This is a podcast where we ask our guest about the jewellery they cherish most of all. We'll explore the moving, fascinating and often surprising stories connected to each piece and those emotional bonds that we just can't do without. My guest today is the musician Dwight Pyle Gray. Dwight is a horn player, a conductor, a teacher and a researcher and so much more. We'll find out about all that when we get into our chat. Dwight has a great website and a blog and a podcast where he discusses black music and musicians and many of his other passions. It's well worth checking out. Google Dwight or perhaps The Black Maestro, but we'll be posting links to all his work on the website later. I'm keen to hear about some rather special pieces of jewellery from Dwight today and to find out what he's been up to during this time, which has been particularly difficult for musicians. Although I've no doubt he's been busy, he's doing a PhD at the London College of Music, researching African music influences on black composers' symphonic output. I'm really looking forward to this. Right, welcome to This Is A Token. Thank you very much for giving up the time and coming on and having a chat. Splendid. Thanks for inviting me. So nice to have you. Now, I was doing a bit of research on you and I was thinking, hang on a minute, this is like five people, not one person. Because (laughs) it's like, and then he does that and then he does that and you're conducting all this sort of thing. But actually, I know you from dog walking or... (laughs) Occasionally, I'm puffing around the park, aren't I? And I sort of stop and say, thank God there's where I can stop. And get, that's my yeah, yeah. But that's where we're chatting mostly, yeah. isn't it? On the dog walking circuit. That's You've true. got two... Two little dogs. I have a miniature schnauzer and poodle cross, otherwise known as a schnoodle. Nice. I like dog names. Yeah, Connie's got a, a, a pomchi, I think. Pomchi? Chihuahua. Wow. Pomeranian. And Pomeranian. Yeah, mix. Wow. <laughs> um, are you mainly in charge of the dog? Are you on dog walking duties? Yeah, that's my, that's my job. Uh, forced into it or voluntary? Well, to be honest, my first dog, Lulu, she was my birthday present. And I bought wow. her for me, oh, uh, 2013 I got her because uh, she said I needed a friend. So clearly, <laughs> nobody in my house is my friend. And uh, so uh, I think three years ago we wanted to get another dog and we wanted to get another schnauzer, but um, they were quite expensive. And a schnoodle was half the price, so we got uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a bargain. So I'm, I'm always suspicious because I always think like you know people are giving dogs because actually what they mean is you need some exercise. <laughs> it could but, be that as well. I think Denise is the main dog walker in our house, and as you know, my old border collie Jessie she was mine. She died a couple of weeks ago, so I don't I've missed her, and you know I can't yeah. quite think about getting another. We still got Pepe here. Um, yeah, so that's my plan of succession. You see. Yeah, good thinking. Yeah, so, so there's five years between the dogs and I've just decided that that is what's going to happen because I'll be devastated when um, Lulu disappears. I was, I was really surprised because, um, you know, Jessie was getting older and older. We knew that her, her days were numbered and, and she started to get quite sore. And it was, But when it actually happened, it, it just like completely knocked me off my yeah. socks. But. Yeah, I know. My my <laughs> sister-in-law's dog died a few weeks ago and you just get knocked out because there's mm. so part of your life. Mm. 
you don't even think about it. The dogs are just there. And, and I, I found the dogs great during this whole lockdown period because we're out and about and stuff. So I was going to ask you because it feels like the performing arts have been the hardest hit during this period. Mm. And you do just about everything. You know, you play, conduct, write, direct, I don't know, all these different things. Has that side of your work completely dried up during this work time? No, well, I'm, I'm really fortunate being in the army. So although we're not doing as much performing as normal, we are still performing. So there are things put in place for that. So I'm, I'm lucky in that way. In terms of my conducting work, I haven't done any conducting because ensembles are, are not really meeting. But I'm also lucky that I have conducting students. So I've been doing lots of conducting on, on Zoom. Are you sort of sat with your computer and they're sat with their computer and you're all yeah, waving yeah. your arms? Yeah, well, well they're, they're waving their arms. So I don't tend to do much yeah. of that. Um, I'll, do, I'll do some because I have to show them some stuff. And it's not an ideal thing because there are times that I actually need to be with them. So it's not ideal, but at least it's been keeping me in. But I've been able to do lots of other stuff, lots of research, I'm doing some teaching at um, university, so that's really good. So uh. Yeah. Do you know what? Something I loved was that TV programme about being a conductor where they got some celebrities to try and conduct. Oh, that's the thing that um, Sue Perkins won. Yeah. And I've got a secret thing where I just think it must be one of the best things in the world to <laughs> stand up with your back to that huge audience, your front to a huge orchestra, and then create this vast sound that rolls over you and onto Ooh. you. I mean, what is that like when you start so for, <laughs> so for me, I, and I keep trying to say to my students, actually the performance at the end is the last bit of my work. So actually yeah. all my work is done in the rehearsals, in the lead up, and on performance day, I need to be out of the way because my job is to facilitate you guys playing. That's my job. So I just need to shape you. That's what it is. I love the sound of it. Okay, and then you just sort of almost need to you need to be there, obviously. Yeah, I need just to be there. Allowing them to do uh, what uh, you've instructed. Them. Exactly. Yeah. Because concert day is different to rehearsal day. So yeah. adrenaline's going, people are nervous, the an audience behind you, lights are going on, you're dressed up in your finest concert gear, you feel differently. Everything is different. So even though I've said this is what we do in the rehearsal, concert day it's live music. Something different might happen. So my job is just to shape you and just to show you where I want you to go. And then it's up to you just to let your musicality come out. Actually, concert day is the day that I don't really like that much, to be honest. Wow. I just thought it just seems like the funnest thing. I was going to ask you, if you ever get like, bring a friend to work day. Absolutely. I say to my students, don't forget, when you get on that podium, that is your space. So you've got to own that space. Yeah. There's nothing worse than being a player and somebody gets onto the podium and they're kind of in themselves and you think, oh, no, come on. Yeah. You know, because actually I need you to help me bring all of this out. So that's my aim on a concert day is just, just to be out of the way. In the same way, if you were a soloist, you know, you, you're going to play on a performance, people actually want to hear the music yeah that's what they want to hear so basically you're out of the way it's the instrument that is the thing and that's the same age i think you should be as a conductor so you mentioned back then which was another thing that I, i'm trying to get my head around all this you seem to have about eight or ten different professions and you're studying for a phd and everything so <laughs> there must be a fair degree of juggling but i'm gonna just reel back a bit and just ask you about how you got into music because i think we might have some 
similarities because I grew up in a musical household. But I believe we were chatting earlier and you were saying your parents are from... Guyana. Yeah. And when did they come over to the UK? And, and, and oh, so, uh, yeah, my, my father came in the late 50s, early 60s, I think, as did my mum. Back in uh, the day, then? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah, so, what can I say? I, <laughs> I always say to people, I was brought up as a Guyanese child in England. I wasn't brought up as an English child, like my son, my own son. Yeah. So I'm, you know, just a Caribbean child, just happened to be not yeah. born in the Caribbean. Yeah, because well, that's and I think that's probably the same for everybody whose parents came here in the 50s, 60s because they didn't yeah. have any points of reference for this country. When I was doing my research, it just sounded really quite idyllic in many ways. And I'm probably looking at this through rose-tinted glasses, but it sounds like it was a very musical household and you were going to church and yeah. you, were, you were, had music at home and your yeah. dad, I think I read somewhere that your dad would play you know, Beethoven on a Sunday, that sort yeah, of thing. Every it week. just sounds really nice. Like you were wrapped up in a lovely family environment and you were all sharing this great passion this, together. We had, for fun, me and my brother and my little sister, we used to sing anthems together. So there are four parts, but actually there were only three of us, so we'd sing three parts. We used to do that for fun. I mean, that's pretty nerdy. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's a, but it's, it's a lovely family atmosphere. I mean, it just sounds like a really nice household to grow well, up it, in. It for, was, yeah, for it was music and, and yeah, we had fun. So we had a piano in the house. We all had to play the piano, and we had to play another instrument. So my older brother he had the trombone. My middle brother had the clarinet, and my sister had the violin. And they were all rubbish at those instruments. But you, duh, they got the wrong instruments. The horn ah. chose me. See, it's the wrong way around. You hear this so often, don't you, from musicians, that, that, that they feel like an, an instrument chose them. Yeah, I was chosen by the horn. Wow. I, it's as simple as that. And my brother, my, they, they weren't not musical. I'm, I'm not even the best musician in my house. I was never the best musician in my house. In, in my household, if I just explain, my parents were very musical. So we had a piano, we all learned the piano, we all had to take up a second instrument, yeah. mine was a clarinet. What happened with me and all my other brothers and sisters, except for one was that we did what my kids have done and anything I've told them to do, they've just done the opposite and hated it. So we gave it up as soon as we could. You know, as soon as we were bolshy teenagers, we gave it all up. Yeah. But my elder sister, she got her grade eight at a young age. And I think that's quite unusual to get your grade eight. And I think you got your grade 17. eight. 17. 17. So that's oh. quite unusual, isn't it? To... Well, see, I don't think... Huh. Because the environment that I was doing my music in, everybody was getting grade eight. That's just what you did. It was just like, have you got your grade eight yet? Come on. I mean, everybody had grade eight in the things that I was doing. I struggled with grade five, mate. <laughs> no, but, but the thing is, is that it's about getting the right instrument. So my sister was rubbish at the violin. I mean, just awful. But she was yeah. great at the piano. Yeah. And sometimes it's about physiological characteristics. So you're playing an instrument and... Yes, you're good at it, but actually you're extraordinary at it because just you're physiologically suited to it. Like the piano, you might have a massive hand span, which means that you'll just be better than somebody else. Both my brothers, they just weren't suited to the instruments that they got, but they would have been suited to different instruments. But okay. because my father was kind of elitist, he, you know, he didn't want them to play the guitar or anything like that. He wanted them to play a classical instrument. And you sound like a bunch of nerds and you're already into your classical music. That didn't take much Yeah, well, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I started playing the piano when I was like seven years old. So that's a yeah. long time ago. So we were, we were going to church and for me, music was easy. So when I was very young and we used to have 
you know, assembly at school and they used to play a hymn and they just just sing it. And people used to be singing all the wrong notes. And, and I was like, well, yeah, what are you why, doing? Why can't you hear that that is wrong? Yeah, yeah. Of course, I was only like five, six. And yeah, I yeah. realise now that's just because I've been lucky that I've got a pretty good ear. say that anyone can be musical yeah. and play a musical instrument. Everybody this this whole musical. thing we say, I haven't got a musical ear, is, <clears throat> is actually not. Is that an excuse that people use? And uh, Well, we can all talk. Talking is just a, a, a variance in pitch. Music is a variance in pitch. That's all it is. It's the same as anything. You just need to train yourself yeah. or, or be trained. And some people are going to get it quicker than others. That doesn't mean that you're, you're not musical. It's funny you should say that because um, music because we were sort of forced to do it it was something that i turned my back on playing music and instead i went into art because I, I really enjoyed art and I, now i get people say oh, I, I can't draw and i always kind of go can you hold a pencil you know and then you can draw you can make a mark on a piece of paper <laughs> that's drawing yeah, yeah and so i often wonder if people use it as an excuse and they're a bit afraid of it perhaps or afraid of doing it badly and i think as an adult you, you are afraid of a lot of things you get to a point where you don't want to be embarrassed or humiliated. And I think that's the thing that holds people back rather than not being able to do it. Yeah. You don't want people to laugh at, at you. It's like learning a language. So for you, you know, you were getting on well at school doing it and then you went to, I don't know if we call it music uni, but... Um, no, so, um, I, so, um, so my mum died when I was 17, just when I was doing my uh, A-levels and my uh, auditions. How, so How awful and how difficult, what a terrible time. For... Yeah, well, that's just what it was, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to say that it wasn't hard, of course it was. But that's just what it was, and yeah. I had to get on with it. So basically, my father went and got married again six months after my mum died, and that wasn't very easy. Wow. And uh, I had to sell my horn. So I sold my horn. Hey, how old were you then? 17? 18. Just, just 18. So wow. I had to sell my horn. So I didn't actually pay the horn from the age of 18 to the age of 30. Having already got my grade 8, so that was fine. So I was doing computers. I'd got married in Birmingham, and... and I used to be driving around a lot. I was doing about two and a half thousand miles a week doing various computer things. And I listened to the radio, I listened to Classic FM all the time. And things were on the radio and I said, oh, I played that, I played that, I played that, I played that. I played everything. And I was getting to a crossroad. So I was thinking about going to do computer science at university, but I didn't really want to. And I thought, I wonder if I could just go and do music. And in the end, I decided on my 30th birthday that if I didn't try and go to music college, now at 30 I'd get to 40 and it would be too late so I stopped working in computers got a horn and also I thought if I take some lessons if I'm really rubbish then I can just go back to computers then it's fine that's amazing so it's kind of a, a late returner really yeah, yeah. in some ways yeah that's amazing was it one of those things where were you afraid of music because it's like how do I how do I earn a good living and it, you know if, if, if you no uh, not at all I just want so the thing is I I I hadn't even got that far, yeah. so I thought I just wanted to go to college and see what would happen, knowing that I had a successful computer career. So if it wasn't working, I could just go back to computers. Yeah. And I was earning stupid money in those days, so, yeah, so I just thought, this is an easy one. Go and do some music. If it doesn't work, guess what? Go back to do computers. At least you've been to college and you can play music again, get yourself back into it. So... 
so we're going to just move on to the the medal you have which you brought along so i'm going to i'm going to just describe what it visually what it looks like and it is a silver coin about sort of three and a half centimeters in diameter with the queen's head on and it is mounted on ribbon that the, the kind of colors are similar to the um, west ham colors there's a nice blue and a claret and two white stripes and it has some latin writing around the side and on the back it has a kind of diamond pattern on the back doesn't it, it says 1952 to 2012 so h- how come you received that medal and what's the medal for so it's a jubilee medal for the queen's 50th jubilee which i guess is diamond i suppose everybody who who had done five years service in the forces in 2012 was eligible to receive that medal. There are a lot of people who won't have that medal who's joined after 2012. Um, And it was a way of marking the Queen's anniversary for members of uh, her armed forces. So that's not just the army, that's the Navy and the Air Force. I think the police also have them and maybe the fire brigade uh, as well. So, but saying that, there still aren't that many people who have one of those medals. You know, it's not like a, a massive thing. I'm kind of fascinated with medals because I think when you're talking in terms of jewellery, I think medals are, are absolutely fundamental items of jewellery. They're something that you wear that signify or connect you to something. I, I think for a lot of people, medals must be incredibly important. And we were, we were talking a bit about your dad and you were saying that that um, you didn't know enough about it but he had yeah. some medals he had some medals yeah and i wish that i had asked him about them when i was younger but of course when you're younger you don't really want to know about old people's stuff yeah we playing football and stuff you know but, but when did you drag those medals out I mean, when, when so, did you see them? Did, so we only saw them once a year on remembrance sunday when we went to church yeah. but you used to put them on proudly but i never thought to ask him about them also the war was a long time ago when i yeah. was little 1975 it would have been what 30 years yeah. since the end of the war that's not really a long time but for me it's like ancient history mm. so why would I ask those questions so that's really sad that I never knew what those medals were for and um, you don't have the medals now no we buried my father with the medals and, and that was a really stupid thing to do because uh, I can't actually remember what they were like and had I been able to remember what they were like I could have at least kind of traced them because I would have been able to trace them by the ribbons so do the colours on the ribbon signify uh, no so that is the ribbon for this medal yeah. yeah so a medal goes on a particular ribbon yeah you don't change the ribbon depending on no, where no. you come from or, yeah. no no okay. so this is the ribbon that's associated with this yeah. medal so the afghan medal i think is a kind of yellow i think it's got two red borders and then in the middle i think it's got two black sides and yeah. then two white stripes in the center and a red one i think yeah something like that but each ribbon is specific for the medal do you think there's a department in the army where people get to design or do they do they outsource it? What a I, I, job really, I, I really don't know, but I, I'm guessing that there must be somebody sitting in a little office somewhere with lots of colours and having a lovely time. <laughs> Saying, "All right, the next medal, let's have this one." You know, because um, I think years ago I did some sort of copy medals. I think it was for some sort of fashiony project. So it wasn't the real McCoy, but I dealt with the military ribbon suppliers. I don't I have no idea if they're still going in the UK. This was quite a long time ago. But so there's there's ribbon suppliers who will have to weave this in exactly the right colour and yeah, way. And I, then... yeah, I think there probably are. There's probably a whole industry around military paraphernalia that nobody really knows too much about. That sounds mm. like a good gig. I, quite like the sound <laughs> of it. I, I do. I really like medals. 
So when I was studying, we, I didn't actually do any of this, but to, to design a metal and then to carve, it was all hand carved. So you would carve into steel the reverse and then you'd have these big stamping machines to stamp out these metals. And it just seemed like an amazingly fun thing to do, but highly technical. And I think I was a bit too arty for it. So I was in the yeah. sort of creative sculptural side of the art school then. So this medal you wear whenever you get dressed up, whenever you're in uniform. Yeah, uh, it doesn't go on my everyday working uniform. It only goes on my ceremonial uniform. So my ceremonial uniform that I'd be wearing for changing of the guard. Yeah. It goes on my number one dress and it goes on my number two. So we have orders of dress, number one dress, number now, two dress. when I was at school, we did the sort of cadet force. I remember there were number ones and number twos. That sounds like yeah. <laughs> yeah. something different now. Yeah. But one's sort of dress, isn't it? Smart stuff. And the yeah. other stuff's a bit scruffier for sort of doing well, it. So for us, it's a, a blue uniform. Kind of like a policeman's uniform, that's yeah. your number one dress. So it's smart, but it's not as smart as my, obviously, red tunic. The shiny and then, red tunic with all the, is it yeah. silver or gold buttons? S- and Silver. Yeah. yeah, well, silver for me, I think gold for, for officers. Okay, um, yeah. But and then number two dress is like your army suit. Still pretty smart, and you still wear it for parades in number two, in number right. two dress. In fact, today is Sovereign's Parade at Sandhurst, and there will be people there wearing number one dress and there'll be people there wearing number two dress as well right okay. so you're not playing for that one today because of my arthritis i'm not marching i love that sovereign's parade like a great day but also because of the whole pandemic thing they're not having a whole band of people so there's only going to be a certain number of people so in the band. you're going to need to spread the band out a bit and you therefore yep. you can't fit as many people it, in yeah, yeah. And, and i guess music is your puffing out Yep. Spittle, so yeah, yeah. So all of those things, all of those yeah. things apply. So, but you know, in saying that, for the sovereign's parade, if you're in the military, you're wearing uniform and you're wearing number one dress or number two dress. So I imagine something like changing the guard. You know, there's kind of standard things that need to be played. Are composers composing music for army musicians to play at mm, events? Not really. I think they should be, don't you think? Because uh, kind of... the army's very insular, really, in terms of of music. I mean, we've got loads of music. Uh, don't get me wrong. hundreds and hundreds and thousands of pieces of music going way way back but for specific occasions the onus is really on the directors of music to compose something so last year in fact Trooping of the Colour it was a Grenadier troupe so the director of music the Grenadier Guards has to compose something but also one of the guys in our band composed a march for the quick troupe which is when the actual music bit starts we do a slow troupe to a piece of music which we always play and have done for a many many years uh, which we play past the queen uh, slow marching and then we play another quick marching and the guy in my band wrote that quick march firstly it's the first time it's ever been done by a serving musician and it's the first time i think it may have even been done by a musician anyway for the quick troop so yeah. that was a real massive deal as a composer this hasn't been something that you thought oh i'd really love to get my teeth into one of these yeah. Not really. Not is not not your type of music, or <laughs> no. Just... I, so um, strangely, I love a wind ensemble music. I really, yeah. I really do. I, I don't think we have enough enough of it in this country. It doesn't have uh, a really big profile. But to be honest with you, I'm way too busy to do that as well. Well, yeah, you do seem to have <laughs> about way too busy careers. Uh, so and also the way in which I compose music wouldn't be the kind of music they would want to play for those kind of events. And I, I, would, I wouldn't want to compromise myself by writing something that I didn't really want to write. Yeah, yeah, you know, sure. it's not my voice basically. So I'm not going to change my voice just for writing for the army.
so now you've made the question because I was thinking, well, you know, if, I'm sure it doesn't work like this, but if the army came to me and said, we need a medal designing for this thing, <laughs> that certainly isn't my style of jewellery, but I think I'd jump at it. Just yeah. Kind of fun of like, you know, trying something new. Well, and, and yeah, but the other thing is, is that um, my perspective is slightly wider than the army. So if I'm writing a piece of music for the army, that is what it's for. And it's only got a limited shelf life and a limited audience. Yeah. And surely I want my music to go as yeah. far as possible rather than in a tiny little thing. So yeah. that was that would be one of the main reasons why I wouldn't want to do it. Where does the majority of commissioning for new music come from then? Because composers will compose, but who pays you for that and how does that work so people are getting commissioned to write music all of the time to write wind ensemble pieces so we are very fortunate in this country that we have lots of ensembles orchestras wind ensembles my old boss has a a civilian ensemble they're very good he's very good they've had works commissioned I had a work commissioned for my wind ensemble in Buckinghamshire the army have had some works commissioned the marines will do the same the RAF will do the same but mainly people are writing stuff for other ensembles immediately there's a piece called Four Norfolk Dances that was written for a wind ensemble in Norfolk and each piece is named after a little district in Norfolk so one's called Dis Dance and Lopham Lament and stuff so nice yeah, so nice. you know that, that that that's really good. Pop them hoe down and <laughs> so going back to this medal, which is a lovely piece. It, I've got to say, just because our patient listener can't see, but it is shiny. And the minute Dwight got it out, he's he's got a little cloth with him, and he's he's like almost subconsciously polishing yeah, it yeah. away. So, so um, presumably you'll tell your your kids don't bury it with me because that's a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I hadn't done that yeah, to my yeah. dad. But um, it, it might be half worn away because it's going to be so polished. But um, the nice thing about something like a medal is it is an inheritance piece, isn't it? It's going to go to your children and Absolutely. their children. It's not something you ever think you're going to chuck out. Or... No, no, because it, it binds me to my army colleagues. Not only the guys who are in like my band, but in the bands that I've been in and to the guys that I did my training with. Even, you know, some of those guys I haven't seen since the day we left our training. But if they're still in the army and they've got this medal, we have that connection. And that's the thing that is really important, uh, I feel. So I wonder if medals were sort of invented in order to create loyalty and connection amongst people or whether they were a response to that loyalty and connection and, and, and a need for having an object to keep you all together. Or maybe it was a bit, maybe it wasn't one or the other. Maybe I think it's probably a bit of both. I yeah. mean, from what I understand about people who've been, you know, into battle, that you can't fake those relationships. Yeah. And if you've been into battle with somebody, then, you know, you're going to have that re- relationship and part I suppose of that is is that you also have something tangible to say we were at the battle of Ruskin Park together fighting off those other dog walkers and here's our medal to say that you know we are part of a a little exclusive club and we've got this bond that can't be broken I think that's partly what it's what, what they're for I think I might try and get some someone who has battle medals on this podcast because uh, so we've had people who have a relation who's passed and who they yeah. miss and obviously there's the obvious things like a like a wedding ring and engagement yeah. ring that sort of thing that connects you to some great love but I'd be really interested to know whether that connection and that sense of 
camaraderie and connection that you're talking about if people have actually gone into battle together that must be an overwhelmingly powerful yeah i think it emotion and response and one of my favorite days is um remembrance sunday i i absolutely love it and i didn't really get it until i joined the army my first experience of doing it at uh, the cenotaph and once they've come you've done the whole big thing the bit that you see on the tv then they all march off and they go around to to horse guards but the sight of seeing guys who can't walk marching on that day there's something really special about that because they're not marching because they want to be you know show they're marching for their friends that who aren't coming back yeah. that they've lost and that's something that's really powerful yeah. uh, for me and the whole medal thing is you could have uh, like I say an afghan medal and meet somebody else who's got an afghan medal who you don't know who's in a different unit but you've got the same medal so You've got that bond and you understand each other, even if, you know, yeah. you're from Newcastle and you're from Southampton, different units, you're a tanky and you're, you're an infantry guy. Uh, but that wouldn't happen if you were just two guys meeting up at, I don't know, a race course. That little piece of metal, that's where that becomes important. Which, which actually, you know, the, the material value of this is, it's a bit of ribbon and a bit of metal, isn't yeah. it? So we've, we've all got some coins in our pocket or yeah. whatever, and but it's the connection, isn't it? It's the yeah. representation that's important. For exactly. So just moving on, so I thought that the whole business of being in the army was surprised me because I imagined if you were in the army, you would have to be completely f- sort of full time and you wouldn't be walking your dogs in the park in the morning and you wouldn't be doing all these 100 million other things that you managed to do. But but so obviously the work you do with the army doesn't take up all your time. No, it doesn't take up all my time. I mean, it is my full time job and yeah. it's my, my day job and that's the thing that I get paid for. And to be honest with you, you know, I had a freelance career as a musician but I've always said to people that this is my job and this is the thing that allows me to do my freelance stuff. So, yeah. you know, if you're going to offer me some work and it's going to be on a time when I'm working, then I can't do it because yeah. this is the thing that, that I do. And so people know that. I've been really lucky in the last few months that um, I've been able to have some more time to do some research, have some more time to do some teaching and stuff. So, you know, the army have been pretty good about that. They understand that. They know who I am and what I do. Yeah. And so it's worked out pretty pretty well for me. So how many orchestras are you working with at the moment? So I have two orchestras, one in Oxford and one in uh, Kent. Mm-hmm. So my last performance with my with any of my ensembles was in January of this year. Yeah. But we're still in regular contact because obviously they're looking to when they can go back and rehearse I don't think we're going to do anything until June at the earliest yeah. any concerts which is unfortunate and presumably you can't just do a concert you need all the rehearsals and, exactly you know, and booking yeah. venues is a lot well they've actually booked venues right um, so that, that was confirmed last week great but I don't think we'll start rehearsing until at least March then you have problems with obviously numbers who are going to turn up and what the rules are going to be the ages of people so it's, it's very difficult and I anticipate that there are going to be lots of orchestras with a lot of lots of changes of personnel because a i don't think we can sustain the number of um, orchestras we've got now b there are going to be lots of people who are going to just not come back and then c there are going to be people who are in 
some ensembles whose ensembles have folded and now coming to new ensembles. So there's going to be a whole kind of change over. I've heard some nice theories that after, after the Great Plague, after the... First World War, after all these devastating things that have happened yeah. to mankind, there's a bit of an explosion of creativity. So my hope is that music's going to be the same, that actually something new is going to blossom from like, I hope this so. Um, so fingers crossed. You know, classical music's a, quite a difficult one, isn't it? Because I guess a lot of young people don't see it as kind of as cool. It isn't as immediately grabby as a sort of music. And then the other, as classical musicians, they're not very open to innovation and uh, and so things like you know we've been in lockdown people have been taking up using technology to have rehearsals and and do stuff i don't really see too many classical orchestras taking up technology yeah there's a bit of elitism about classical music i was going to ask you a bit about um inclusivity in classical music because it is always something that shocks me i was saying earlier that we were kind of forced to play musical instruments and go to concerts so there was a long period where i rejected all of that but now that i'm a bit older i I still go back to like some good old ding-dongs like you know verdi requiem or something at the royal festival yeah it's a really fun evening out and something that that people ought to give it a go but when i go into that environment firstly i have a bit of anxiety and you feel like if you're doing the wrong thing or if you're talking at the wrong time zone people sort of tuck you yeah. you know because it doesn't make me feel very comfortable no and secondly i look around the audience and the orchestra and i think this is really lacking in any sort of diversity i'm sure all the people there they're good people but how do you see the classical music world embracing uh, uh, diversity and and moving forwards to the future with well the, i mean I mean, there's so many initiatives going on right now so you know the classical music world's got to be applauded in that radio 3 are doing lots of positive stuff chiniki orchestra are doing lots of positive stuff you know i'm doing my research the, the chiniki orchestra by the way is a, a orchestra that you've worked with could you yes. just explain what that is so the foundation was set up essentially to highlight the lack of diversity in uh, classical music. So an orchestra was set up as a kind of stepping stone that is mainly made up of people from the BAME community so that they can uh, get into other orchestras. I think one of the people that you talk about a lot, when I was doing my research, was Samuel, Samuel Coleridge Taylor. hero. Um, um, Samuel Col- Coleridge Taylor, I'm getting up. Yeah, yeah. So he was sort of, what? Late 19th century. Right, so, yeah. Uh, 1875, I think he was born. Is that right? I might be embarrassing myself now for me i'm from croydon and so i've known about Cole Shaler all of my musical life because he's from croydon i mean he lived in croydon so it was a massive deal for us when we were in croydon we did hiawatha's wedding feast at fairfield halls in croydon because so i've known that about that piece for a I'm long time i'm gonna have to say to our to our listener that while i was doing my research on you i played hiawatha and it's a it's just a fantastic piece of music yeah, and it's, it's brilliant it sort of gets you you know, really, yeah. it's stirring. I mean, would you it, it's, stirring? Yeah, it is. You know, it is a piece of its time, and I can see why people don't pay so much attention to it now because it really is kind of late nineteenth-century pompous music. Yeah, that's what it is. It's really of its time. But he was a black man. Yeah. Uh, and you know born here and talented guy and went to college with Vaughan Williams and Holst these guys that we hold up as excellent at the top of their game composers yeah. and he was the best of them yeah I, 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 I don't agree it's stirring stuff really yeah. really worth um, checking out you know there's a story of him being recommended to Elgar's agent to write this piece because Elgar was too busy 
but he wanted somebody to do it. And he, he selected Coleridge Taylor. Yeah. He could have selected Holst or, or, but that's the guy he chose because he was the best of the guys coming out of the Royal College. So tell me, have you played Hiawatha with, because you played in some pretty big wig symphony orchestras um, over <laughs> the years. I have never played, well, I played Coleridge Taylor with the Chiniki Orchestra. Yeah. But with anybody else, I haven't played any Coleridge Taylor. Only when I was in youth orchestra. Ah, oh, because I imagine that would, for you now, having done all that research, and it would just be a fantastic experience, it, wouldn't it? It, it would be all? excellent, but as I say, I'm not sure that Hiawatha, as a kind of revival piece, it would probably be okay to do it uh, once or twice, but I'm not sure there's really space for it in the current repertoire. I mean, I like Horizontal, but I just don't think it's a work that fits in to people's current Right, yeah, tastes. certainly classical music, like everything else, goes through cycles of fashion, yeah. doesn't it? And you see that, that something's all the rage and then something yeah, else yeah. is all the rage. But and I'm not sure even if even if the subject matter right now would actually be palatable. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it seems rather strange to think of a black man writing something that might be considered uh, as racist, but... The whole subject matter, you, you could question it. I, I, I did have a little question, and I thought, God, this is a rabbit hole that I don't want to <laughs> yes. get stuck down. That's so. all I'm going to say. I'm not going to get any, I'm not going any further with that. But, cool. You know, you cool. could do. Yeah. So this medal's fantastic, and, and Spock, thank you very much for bringing no, it on. I'm going to take a snap so that we can put it on the website. From what I understand, you've got another one. Yeah. And so tell me about that. So when you've done 15 years in the army, I suspect it's similar in the other um, services, but I, I don't know. I can only speak for the army. You are eligible for your long service and good conduct medal. It's called something else now. I think yeah. it's called the long service medal. And basically, as long as you've been a good boy and hadn't been caught doing anything <laughs> wrong, <laughs> then you would get your long service and good conduct medal. Because obviously we're in a funny time now. Yeah. I mean, I'm only just eligible for it. So yeah. after you've done 15 years, so that was only a month ago, I'm due to get my long service and good conduct medal. So it's a real big deal, actually, because... When I joined the army and, I, and people were getting their LS and GC, I was, 15 years? Oh my goodness, what are you doing so long in the army for? Yeah. And now here I am, <laughs> you know, 15 years in the army. And again, it means something because firstly, not everybody gets an LS and GC because they may have had a misdemeanor when they were at the beginning of their army career that's meant that they haven't been able to get it. Or they may not have done 15 years. Yeah. It's as simple as that. But if you've done 15 years, then, you know, that's something to be that's celebrated. And, and you're going to end up with a little collection. Now, we haven't got that medal here because we're under, you know, coronavirus is still around. Yeah. And am I right in thinking that you would normally get a fantastic... Well, no, yeah, so normally what happens is that you'll get your medal and then your medal is presented to you at a big parade. I mean, you wouldn't get it presented... Uh, at the end of changing of the guard, for example. Yeah. But you might get it presented when you come back from Trooping the Colour yeah. because you've got some big officers there, so you know, some really high-ranking. Yeah. And so it's a big day. People normally get you know their family to come and you have a presentation. You shake hands with the boss, have a smile, go out for some drinks afterwards. Get a photo. A, yeah, it's a, it's a really big day. Um, I was speaking to my old boss about it last week when I spoke to him because I was saying, well, maybe it's, it's going to be a bit of a damp squib. I'll probably just get it in the post. And he said, do it on Zoom. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I put it on myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he said, well, maybe you should just wait. Uh, because you've got the medal, so yeah. maybe you should just wait until there's an opportunity for you to have a parade and get it 
um, presented. So yeah, one great. of my colleagues got it presented by Prince Andrew, who's the colonel of our regiment, last year. And that, that was on our Memorial Sunday. So we'll wait and see what happens. Uh, hopefully this whole thing isn't going to go on forever and, and you might get the, the ceremony. And then c- can I come and take a photo of it so that we can we can show you? Yeah, absolutely the two right. great side yeah, by side because yeah. a little row of medals is quite, a little, is quite yeah, special, yeah. I mean, I, I've got to <laughs> say, I mean, there are people in the army who have a massive... I don't think that's ever going to happen again for um, people who are joining the army now. They may get one or two medals. Yeah. Possibly only one. Yeah. Which might be the Ellison GC. Maybe some of the sort of minor royals. You sort of start off with about 15, don't you, without actually doing anything. <laughs> yeah. So they're probably going to be the only ones with these. Exactly. Big... I mean, my old boss, he's got a whole... Uh, for a musician, he's got a lot of medals. Yeah. He's got about six or seven. And that's a lot of medals for a yeah. musician. But he's got a Northern Ireland medal. And um, he's got clasp because he did some outstanding work as a musician. Also. So you can have a little addition to your yes. medal that, that signifies something Some, extra yeah. or something more. Yeah, yeah, indeed, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's got a class on his, which always surprises senior officers when yeah. they see him because they just think he's just a musician. Yeah. It means he's done some daring do's yeah. out in Northern Ireland. So he kind of properly gets respect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, right, tell me, just quickly, because I'm fascinated in your, in your PhD, every page I turn on Googling, it's like, what? And a PhD? So tell me about that. So basically, I'm a conductor, so that's my thing. Yeah. And so I'm going to be conducting works of 20th century African-American composers. But those works are informed by society, their economic things, and most importantly, by African inputs into their music. So uh, part of it is about... African-American nationalism in classical music and the inputs that come from Africa and the regions where they came from. And what I'm trying to do is show how your gestures and your interpretation should be informed by where music has come from. So basically what I'm saying is in classical music we're taught one way and we conduct like this and this is what we do because that's what it is. But actually surely there's more to it than that in terms of symphonic music by African-American composers is informed not only by Western classical music, but it's informed by African devices. And surely the way that we interpret those should be different. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds that sounds really interesting. And I yeah. think one of the things that listening to Samuel Coleridge-Taylor was that you wouldn't get anything from listening to his music. Or me, I don't get anything of his heritage while I listen. I mean, obviously part of his heritage, Yeah. because he was living and working in Britain, and travelling to the US a lot, but you don't get anything of no. his black heritage in the music he's creating. No. So if we wanted to listen to someone where you think it's a good example of someone who's mixing those different things, give us a name that we could perhaps Google and listen to something to. So that I would say listen to Florence Price's symphonies. That's great, because that was part of my Googling, and I discovered all these people that I didn't know about. Yeah. You know, shame on me. Because I didn't know about them. Florence Price was one of those Yeah, people. so the reason I say Florence Price is because in the third movement of a symphony, it's generally a dance. Then that's just a standard thing, Western class, classical music. So she wrote four symphonies, and she had a dance movement in all of her four symphonies. But her dance movement was a juba dance. A juba dance is a slave dance from Congo, and is transported to Charleston in America. That's where it went to originally. The Got Charleston it. comes from the juba dance. Got it. Yeah. The tap dancing comes from the juba dance, but she used the juba dance as a way of signifying her African American or her African heritage, yeah. and 
incorporating it into a symphonic work. Great. So if you want to start anywhere, I would say start there. And right. her music's great as well. Right. All right, so, I'm going to give it a listen. Yeah, yeah. We've been chatting along for too long, so I'm going to say thank you for bringing in this fantastically shiny and well <laughs> medal. It's a pity we couldn't actually see your second medal, but times yeah. are as they are. But we hopefully we can get a photo of it at some point and put it on the website so that we can see the two of them yeah. side by side. And um, I'm really grateful that I've been able to chat to you because I've long since thought medals are one of the best examples of what jewellery is and what it signifies. So I was so happy to, to grab you and say, yeah, and say, I met you in the park, didn't I? I said, yeah, yeah. Have you got any medals? And you're like, yeah, I've got one and I'm going to get another one. So I said, come and be on my podcast. Yeah, but, I'm um, really glad that you asked me to do it. I had a really good time. So. Right, thank you. Really, That's been really fascinating. Thank yeah. you so much for coming in and having a chat. Cheers. No worries. Cheers. Lovely. Done. Cool. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you'd like to see some of the pieces we've been talking about, or for more information about any of the issues we've discussed, please check out our website and follow the links to the podcast page. You'll also find information on how to share your own stories, give a bit of feedback, or have a look at all the jewellery-related things I've been up to recently. We've also got some great jewellery-making tutorials on our YouTube channel. There's lots to see. Just go to www.alexmonroe.com